Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 40B in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show... Just because you're trans, it doesn't mean you need to have the surgery. The people who wish to have those surgeries can finally start feeling comfortable in their own bodies and we may actually be able to save some lives from this. Transgender Australians may be able to access gender reaffirming surgeries through Medicare from next year. We have all the details. Also, some species have been declared endangered from far north Queensland. And later today... Our first product to market is a 15-seat uh, fixed-wing aircraft. And what we're doing is retrofitting it with our hydrogen electric propulsion system. So that'll enter the market in 2026. An Australian company is building green hydrogen-powered small aircrafts, bringing sustainability into the aviation industry. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the Victorian government has announced Victorians using pads and tampons will have access to them for free across the state. Women's health advocates welcomed the proposal, saying it will reduce the period poverty, which has grown thanks to the cost of living. The Women's Health Services Network says one in five Australians experiencing menstruation use unsuitable alternatives instead of hygiene products because of financial reasons. I asked Chair of the Women's Health Services Network, Trisha Curry, what's period poverty? Period poverty is something that's not often spoken about, yet it's something that so many women and people who have periods experience. It happens when a person has to trade off. They have to make a decision as to whether they can afford period products for their own personal hygiene or not. And we'll often see it with young people and school absentees and, you know, a young woman with a period and not having the products that she needs to remain comfortable and managing her period in such a way that what she will trade off is staying away from school rather than going to school because of the concern she has around, you know, her own personal privacy around her, her period at the time. That's one small example. The Victorian government has proposed free access to pads and tampons across the state. What's the position from the network about this? Oh, we really welcome it. We really welcome that there's a sense within the Victorian government that there's you know, a policy environment that's saying that every woman, every girl, every menstruating person is supported to destigmatize period poverty and to have their dignity supported by access to, to appropriate period products throughout that period of their lives. So really do welcome it as a policy environment. It's something that addresses some of the stigma that is around women's sexual and reproductive health and particularly around you know, menstruation. We know that to address stigma, we need to be able to have conversations that allow a normalcy or allow you know normal conversations to be acknowledging that this is something that women and people who experience periods are facing very regularly. 
So you were mentioning earlier that, you know, buying pads and tampons are very expensive. Yeah. How is the cost of living exacerbating this issue? Well, because for every person, and particularly, you know, when the economic pressures are on, you know, whether it's through mortgages or rent or through the cost of food, the cost of essential services, those things all bring additional pressure to the dollars or to the budget that's available to people who menstruate, to women and girls. And so it does mean that you can often be in a position where you're looking at that grocery list and you're deciding, do I actually purchase something on the on the grocery list or do I purchase the period products? And often what happens is that those period products are not affordable um, because they are actually often expensive in terms of the quantity and the amount and, and the type of product that actually works best for women. We know that, you know, one in five individuals experiencing menstruation do re resort to using toilet paper or socks or other unsuitable alternatives based on those financial constraints. Well, that's a very concerning statistic. Tricia, could you please tell us a little bit more about the reports the Victorian Women's Health Services has published about the health promotion and gender equality? The Victorian Women's Health Services have been able to publish a report that speaks to the value of investing in actions and programs that are very preventing ill health before it happens. They're what we call upstream work that happens through the Women's Health Services across Victoria. And we've been able to publish a report, Dr Angela Jackson, a health economist, and her team have worked on, which is indicating the impact of preventing illness, preventing disadvantage, to ensure that there's the inclusion of, of women and girls in the things that create good health for them. There are programs that are supporting good women's health. We also have three statewide women's health organisations that ensure that when we do this work, we're understanding the compounding impact on women's health, such as understanding the impact of multicultural and migrant experience or that of women with disability or that of First Nations women or that of rural women, etc. Would yeah. you like to see these in other states and territories? Of course. We would love to think that every woman, girl, menstruating in Australia lived in communities where their health and well-being was actually valued, understood, de-stigmatised, de and where not only was the impact of period poverty understood, was actually acted on. That would be something so wonderful. That was Chair of the Women's Health Services Network, Trisha Curry. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. The transgender community faces many challenges, including stigma and health discrimination. But now an application made by the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons is requesting the federal government add essential gender-affirming surgeries to the Medicare Benefits Scheme. If passed, over 40,000 transgender adults in Australia may soon be able to access gender-affirming surgeries through Medicare. The Wires contributor from TuneFM, Ash Taylor, reports. A lot of the surgeries I would want would cost over 10 grand being generous. 
I believe one of the surgeries can go up to a hundred grand. And that's just not something I can see myself doing within the next few years, so I have to make a financial plan over it. For this transgender man who has elected to remain anonymous, the cost is a massive barrier. Dr Nicola Dean, the current president of the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, says that currently it's unclear how many patients are undergoing gender-affirming surgery due to a lack of data. The number of people that are wanting to have these surgeries compared to the number of people that can access them is really out of balance. Um, So we know that some of these surgeries are going on through private hospitals with MBS items, but we don't really know how many are, are occurring across Australia at the moment. A study on the healthcare experiences of gender-diverse Australians found that 42.5% of participants who had undertaken gender-affirming surgery reported higher levels of physical and mental health than those who had not. There are now some good studies from other countries uh, that demonstrate significant improvements in what we call patient-reported outcomes measures. Australia has a good healthcare system that looks at the medical evidence for procedures and I think we're very lucky to have that. And so now there is much stronger medical evidence out there that these procedures should be provided. Then I'm hopeful that the Australian healthcare system will uh, rectify the the lack of access um, that's been there for so long. Jess, a non-binary person who uses they-them pronouns, is also seeking gender-affirming care along with their brother. My brother is also trans and he would like to get um, top surgery. And I think he put it really well um, when I was speaking to him yesterday about this interview. Um, He said, people say, oh, but why can't you just bind? Why can't you just hide your chest with, like, even getting breast reduction to like an A cup and he said it's not about hiding my chest it's about getting the chest that I need Um, and ultimately neither of us can afford to get top surgery. In metropolitan areas gender affirming care can be easier to access as there are a large number of organizations and activists working to educate and raise awareness. In rural areas it can be much harder for gender-diverse individuals like Jess to get the care they need. I know coming from a rural community, the idea of trans people can be lost on so many, like older doctors, older medical professionals, or people who don't believe that they are trans, these people that are coming to them, or they believe that it would be something different, and so they they push them aside. And that happens a lot in rural spaces because of the mentality surrounding it. For many trans people, access to gender-affirming care can literally be life-saving. Just because you're trans, it doesn't mean you need to have the surgery. You could still 100% present in your normal biological self, but still say that you're the gender you weren't assigned at birth that's still fine. You're still transgender. But the people who wish to have those surgeries can finally start feeling comfortable in their own bodies and we may actually be able to save some lives from this. To NFM's Ash Taylor with that report.
You're listening to The Wire, Independent Current Affairs and Community, and Indigenous Radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Moruya on 2ER FM, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. A groundbreaking research project is aiming to build and produce aircraft powered by green hydrogen. Aircraft company Stralis, along with iMove Cooperative Research Center and QUT, are scheduling their maiden flight next year, making aviation more sustainable. The project will be able to build three types of green hydrogen-operated aircraft by 2030, which will make regional flights environment-friendly. I asked CEO and co-founder of Stralis, Bob Kreiner, what motivated him to start this project? So our path to market, we're, we're working on bringing aircraft to market around the 2026 timeframe. Um, in order to do that, we have a lot of development work that we have to do over the next couple of years. And really a big part of that is this simulation of the propulsion system and then testing of it on the ground. Um, and we, we sort of developed this project with Queensland University of Technology and iMove because they bring um, to this partnership some unique expertise around hydrogen technology and sort of uh, system modeling that, that we thought was complementary to what our team is capable of doing. A key part of what we're doing is this partnership with QUT, um, but it's also part of a broader initiative that we've created, which is called the Hydrogen Flight Alliance, and that involves 10 leading-edge companies here in Australia that are helping to roll out the hydrogen ecosystem that will be required at airports to be able to support our aircraft once they're operating. So this is a small project that sits under a larger umbrella of the Hydrogen Flight Alliance. Now, for all of us who are not very aware of the aircraft industry and all that, what type of aircraft are you expecting to modify or build fully that will be operated by green hydrogen? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's good to kind of demystify what the aircraft are that we're working on. So our first product to market is a 15-seat uh, fixed-wing aircraft. Um, it's a Beach 1900D, so this is an aircraft that already exists, and what we're doing is retrofitting it with our hydrogen electric propulsion system. Um, so that'll enter the market in 2026 with our launch customer, Skytrans. Um, and then into the future, we have a 50-seat aircraft that will be a brand-new design, taking the learnings from that previous program um, and bringing that to market around the 2030 timeframe. So it's more about a small aircraft, let's say. I mean, it's not a 737 or an Airbus or something like that. Correct. Yes, yeah, so it's a regional aircraft that would fly more regional routes over the next sort of 10 years. Um, but as a company, we do have grand ambitions in the future to kind of scale up and potentially build um, yeah, larger 737 size aircraft. But that would be um, in the sort of 2030s timeline. Okay, well, that's just around the corner, but that's fantastic. Now, what are the benefits you think green hydrogen will bring into the aviation industry and the environment? So the way we look at it, we think green hydrogen brings two key things. So we, we think it's cleaner and cheaper than the way we currently fly. Um, so on the cleaner aspect, we use green hydrogen in our aircraft. We put that to a fuel cell and we power an electric motor on board. So there's no burning of fuels on board. It's purely hydrogen electric. And what that means is the only byproduct from our 
propulsion system is water. Um, so it's basically emission-free, no carbon, no other nasty um, emissions that come from when you burn kerosene in a jet engine. Um, and on the cheap side, we also see um, a reduction in operating costs of aircraft when you go to hydrogen electric by reducing both fuel costs and maintenance costs into the future. So the maiden flight for the first aircraft that you're developing is next year in 2024. Um, what would you like to see in the future after this project? Yeah, so we're going to get our aircraft flying next year, and that will be like an Australian first flight of an emission-free aircraft, which we're super excited about. Um, but on the back end of that, we'll be doing an extensive experimental flight test campaign in 2025. And then we're talking about our first certified product entering service in 2026. And we're really pushing hard to have that ready in time if Australia does win the, the COP um, bid that's out there. And then looking into the future, we see our 50-seat clean sheet aircraft helping to fly athletes around Queensland um, when the Olympics come here in the 2032 time frame. Okay, fantastic. And my last question, where, where are you based? Where are you building this aircraft for this development? Is it in Queensland only? Yeah, so we're a Brisbane, Queensland-based company, and that's currently where our headquarters is. Um, yeah, and so we really want to continue to like design and build aircraft here in Australia. Um, and but we we sort of build them in Queensland, but we have customers in Australia, New Zealand, the USA, Germany, um, and Asia. So we're looking at building aircraft here and exporting them to the world. That was CEO and co-founder of Stralis, Bob Kreiner. The federal government has added 17 more animals to the threatened species list, just ahead of Christmas. Some of the animals are native to far north Queensland, raising questions around how the most recent floods will impact vulnerable populations. Political reporter for National Radio News and the Community Radio Network, Amanda Cobb, spoke to Peter Bolling from the Australian Conservation Foundation. She says while the most recent additions are mostly reptiles, birds and fish, she wants to highlight a drop in the wider insect population. Summer usually brings out more insects, but global estimates show steep declines. Peter Bolling says insects don't often get the attention of other cutter and fluffier animals, but serve a vital role in ecosystems. She says one insect that's particularly close to politics is the bogong moth, which migrates through Canberra each year to get to cooler alpine regions. The bogong moths, which are a migrating kind of moth that uh, travel through different parts of Australia, they've just finished their migration to the Australian Alps to be a bit cooler for the summer. What, what do we know about their populations in the last few years? We know that overall the bogong moth has a population decline and that is largely due to climate change and habitat loss for this little species. I'm a Canberra local, Canberra born and bred and I have really distinct memories of having bogong moths visiting as a child and falling asleep to pictures of them flapping all over the ceiling of my bedroom. And in their most recent migration, I'm still living in Canberra, and I only saw two or three of them floating around my house. Many other Canberrans have really vivid memories associated with this bogong moth migration. 
One of my favourite stories is the way that Bogong Lost would torment the halls of Parliament House <laughs> and come flapping through the air vents and cause all sorts of ruckus for early politicians. Yeah, I've certainly heard some of those stories about Parliament House. And yeah, I tell you what, there's hardly any moths this year and, and certainly in previous years. So um, yeah, definitely something that we can see right here in Parliament House itself. What does that really mean for um, either the populations themselves, but also the, the wider ecosystem? Bogong moths, like so many insects, play a really important role as a foundation species for the ecosystem because they provide food for lots of other animals and mammals, marsupials in particular. Now, it's not just bogong moths where we have seen declines in population. Um, There's also concerns around the the sort of wider insect population in terms of what's happening to them. What what is happening with, with insect populations in Australia? It's really tricky to say because insects are not a charismatic species. People don't get excited about conserving insects in the way that they do koalas or wombats. But overall, we know that there is a decline and a really significant decline for our insect species. They are often an indicator species of a greater ecosystem loss. And that's because insects are a foundation of almost every ecosystem because they provide enormous amounts of food for those baseline predators in the ecosystem. So when we take away this really important sort of level of the bottom of the food chain, everything else becomes unstable. The government has also released some more species that are on the threatened species list in the last couple of days. What's happened there with the threatened species list? This is devastating because we have an enormous amount of species that have now been nationally recognised as being very close to extinction. But the fact that this was released on right before Christmas is pretty concerning because we get the sense that they were just trying to be sneaky and push through these updates so that conservationists and people in the media wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to get the word out. What else do we know about some of those creatures? Where are we seeing these impacts the most? On the update that came out yesterday, the majority of species actually were from far north Queensland, which is pretty scary because that region is currently being battered by climate-exacerbated floods from ex-cyclone Jasper. We know that these species and all wildlife are being impacted by climate change. And to have the day that these species are listed and recognised nationally coincide with this extreme weather event, it's a really poignant manifestation of the impact that climate change has on our wildlife and the importance of protecting our environment urgently. What do you think Australia can be doing, um, whether that's on on an individual level um, or particularly in a government level, what do you think we can be doing to help those species that are under threat? I think it's the perfect time of year to be having this kind of conversation because people have a little bit more free time. They might be sitting around twiddling their thumbs, thinking, being a little bit more imaginative. You can use just a small portion of your free time to help us protect Australia's threatened species by signing a petition calling for strong nature laws. There are over 2,000 species recognised on our national endangered list. 
That is 2,000 too many. The easiest way that you can help these species is by talking to the government and telling them that you care and you want to see these species affected. So you can head over to acf.org.au and join over half a million other Australians demanding strong nature laws. That was Peter Bolling from the Australian Conservation Foundation speaking with political reporter Amanda Cobb. The government has a Saving Native Species program which is investing $224 million into helping threatened species rebuild populations. And just this week, Environment Minister Tanya Pliversek announced a further $24 million for the program to boost fire resilience and controlling invasive pests. Over the summer break, The Wire will broadcast the best stories of the year, so stay tuned. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next year, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Torval and Jagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you in 2024. On the wire.